The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Exodus 2, 11 through 22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called him his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stacy. It's always funny saying that because my name is Stacy. And usually when I get emails, I get, I always know if it's somebody who actually knows me because they'll say, Mrs. Croft. I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. Hey, I'm a guy. Um, So um, welcome again this morning. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Stacy Croft, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Music Row. would love to get to know you. I mentioned that earlier, and I mean that. Some people don't actually believe me sometimes when I say that. They're like, really, do you do that? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to get coffee or lunch with you, hear your story, connect with you further, and connect you further into our church. And uh, I value that. And so uh, please take me up on it. Um, You know, one, uh, I'm from Texas originally. And uh, I remember, oh, many years ago being in high school and uh, playing football and the Friday night lights thing, it it actually is a thing in Texas. Uh, It's like a religion there, football is. And um, it was unbelievable. Uh, And uh, it was a Friday uh, around Oh gosh, 11, 10 or 11 in the morning when the pep rally was to be. And pep rallies for football in Texas are just what you think they would be. They're rock, con- they're massive, huge things. And uh, I remember, you know, dressed up and, you know, I got my typical, you know, as you would think, I got cowboy boots on, jeans. Uh, I got my, you know, football polo. I'm ready to go. I'm a senior. <clears throat> and it's my turn to lead us out. And, you know, I, this time of the year, you know, uh, we would do these chants. I don't know if you've been on a team or something like that. We do these chants. I don't even know what the words meant we'd chant. We'd just kind of like, we just kind of pump you up, you know. I think that's all we did is grunt. But, uh, and so we'd run out. And so this was my turn to lead us out into the middle of the basketball court. Place was packed. Um, had all our, you know, the whole school's there. My mom is there, yes, watching. Uh, and, uh, you know, they run out and... <clears throat> 
<clears throat> the flag bearer, who is a, a, not a, a sizable guy in stature, was running with the massive, you know those massive flags that go down the field and stuff like that. Well, he's running and my great cowboy boots get caught in the tip of the flag because it's dragging and I flip. And so I flip right there and instead of everybody stopping or helping me up, the flag kind of covers me a little bit and the people just run over me. The rest of the team just like kick me in the head. They just run past. And I just kind of hop up like dazed and confused and just run. And I'm just, you know, the whole place, in front of the whole place. And everybody's just laughing. And I'm sure my mom was like, great job, son. That's just, you're proud. I'm so proud of you. Uh, knowing my mom, who was very sarcastic. Uh, <clears throat> and um, there I am thinking that I am the one to lead them out. And to be all great, and I have everything, you know, I'm ready to go. Uh, and high knees, you know, looking great, you know, ready to go. And just fall on my face. Completely tank. You know, we're starting a new series. It started last week uh, in the book of Exodus. And uh, even if you're here and you may not uh, necessarily proclaim to be a Christian, follower of Jesus, uh, or even know the Bible very well, you probably heard the name Moses, uh, maybe even the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses is a character that often we talk about and, um, and think of, and even if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you think of Red Sea, you think of this guy leading the people, just amazing uh, figure of the Old Testament. He's talked about greatly in the, not only Old, but the New Testament, father of the faith of um, Israel, Exodus, the second book of the Bible. This is like the story of redemption. But what we often miss is to be the mediator as this story is written, to be the person who's gonna be the one that delivers Israel out of bondage, of slavery, out of Egypt, and to be with God in relationship. We think of this grand figure. And guess what? This figure falls on his face. This is the passage where we read, we get to read, Okay, different than other stories that we're used to, this figure who is going to be the one that is the mediator, and a mediator, and even the Bible describes it this way, is somebody, typically if you type it in, you pull up like a lot of political stuff, right? Uh, what is a mediator? A mediator simply is somebody who, uh, and the Bible describes it this way, I love the, the biblical description, puts a hand on one shoulder and a hand on the other shoulder of the other person and con completes, creates a bridge, is someone who's a, a mediator of reconciliation, they don't put themselves in the center. They're not the one that's trying to bring attention to themselves. They're trying to bring attention to how do we make this better? And what was I doing when I was running out of that tunnel? I was wanting to make it about me. And what does Moses try to do the first time out to try and be a mediator in Egypt? He falls on his face because he thinks it's about him. So we're gonna look at two characteristics that the Lord draws out of this passage about how does Moses, how does God shape Moses to be the mediator that he needs to be? The one who actually is gonna put his hand on the, the shoulder of the Israelites and, and in a sense uh, bring God to them to actually bridge that, to reconcile, to be the one that speaks on behalf of them. Because right here you see there's a lot going on and he is not in the place where you would think it would be. Two things we're gonna see. One is the, the, a deliverer. A mediator is a deliverer, someone who delivers them out. And is also one that's drawn out. In fact, that's what Moses' name means, drawn out, drawn out of the water. So let's look at these, these two things as we kind of continue. 
You know, uh, as a deliverer, you know, from the start, his story is significant. Moses' story is actually built up like many Hebrew narratives. If you looked at Exodus chapter one and two, it's always built almost like a funnel. Genesis is written the same way to help you understand kind of like what you're reading because it's often written this grand, vast history drawn within a few verses and chapters and funneled down to a focal point of a person or event. And in this case, especially in Exodus, it's Moses. And the question that actually does come up after you read about, okay, the people of God were, were brought into slavery. It says even the beginning of, of Exodus, it says, now there was a Pharaoh that came up that didn't know Joseph, didn't know anything about how Israel was supposed to have this relationship with them. He puts them into slavery. He begins to just oppress them, oppress them, oppress them. And here the story builds. And almost like some of our American Western stories where we think of, okay, the tension is building. Who's gonna come and rescue them, you know? Who's gonna be the one that comes and takes care of this? I was, it was on TV, you know, when you're watching TV and the movie, they show, you know, TBS or all those stations that show movie. I watched Aquaman. I've seen it before. I was like, oh, I'll watch this again. You know, it, it's fine. It's a good movie, fun. But just like, it, it's just the same theme of so many of, of, of the other ones where it's essentially this, the theme is, is, is this guy gonna bridge all the people that live underwater with all the people that live on land. Is he gonna do it? I mean, you know, like, okay, there's your story. But you wanna watch because you're like, can he do it? Is he gonna do it? And that, you know, there he goes. Then he becomes Aquaman and all the tension that involves in that. And most of the time in our Western view, which is how that movie and others play out, the hero comes to the end and he, they kind of become stronger. They make something, they become someone in order to deliver everyone. This actually and this is how you know the biblical pattern of what God does is actually very different from that. Instead of Moses becoming this grand figure, you see him actually taking steps back. He steps out in, as a 40-year-old to look out. This is verse 11. He's 40, which is the new 20. And he's looking out across the land and he's kind of made it. If you think about Moses and his built up to this point, his story is kind of like that. It's kind of like the Western stories that we thought, the Western cultural stories that we know. He's, he, there's a genocide that's happening. The Pharaoh wants to take out all of the Israel male babies. So he, he creates this genocidal edict to kill them all when they're born. And, and Moses' mother is, is saying, no, she's not gonna do it. So she hides him hides him and only to be discovered by Pharaoh's daughter herself and then raised up into the Egyptian life. It's, it's an incredible story. You think about it. Oh my word, he's, built, he's the perfect mediator. Because you read right here in verse 11, he recognizes somewhere along the line as he's growing up, he recognizes, he knows that he's an Israelite and yet he's living in the palace watching all of his people out there building the palace. He's seeing their oppression. <clears throat> And he would have the perfect pedigree. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, which is a, in the New Testament, it outlines a bunch of people in the Old Testament and their faith and who they were. It says this, it says that he had all the riches of Egypt at his disposal. He had the wealth. Growing up in this Egyptian culture, he would have studied Hammurabi's code. He would have studied Egyptian wisdom. He would have been taking in an education that no one had. And he had it all right there. <clears throat> and here he is looking out and seeing all his people. 
And yet he stands in a position of power, of pedigree. There's even a a verse in here in Acts chapter seven, verse 20, that talks about Moses' beauty. I was super curious about this. I was wondering the beauty of Moses. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who was um, around just just right after Jesus' death uh, in that range who wrote a lot about Jewish history. Listen to this description of Moses. He said that uh, God did also give him a tallness and when he was about three years old as wonderful and as wonderful and for his beauty. It happened frequently that those who met him as he was carried along the road, imagine this little baby, were obliged to turn again upon seeing the child and that they left what they were about and stood still a great while just to look at him. It's like this beautiful little model baby, like this little baby Zoolander child. Like just everybody's just looking at this child and just gazing. It seemed that he had it all. But here's the difference But what the Bible does with what we're used to in this kind of story. We typically think this is the perfect setup for God to rescue these people. He's got it all to do it. All he has to do is step in. And he even tries, doesn't he? He sees it. He recognizes it. And he steps in and he strikes the Egyptian down. And we know that he, know, he understands that he probably shouldn't have done it because what does he do? He hides the Egyptian in the sand after he kills him. His conscience is pricked. He knows he's done something wrong. But God is trying to teach him through this that it is not about his pedigree, his power, his gifts, his skills, his wisdom in order to deliver. I've been doing a lot of weddings. Um, Even in the pandemic, amazing the number of weddings I've been able to do. And one of the things I'm able to do in a wedding, especially in uh, even the the, uh, premarital counseling as well as in the homily when I do the wedding is to talk often about the difference between having two Christians in a marriage and having a Christian marriage. That it is easy for a lot of relationships, you could say this about any relationship really, but particularly in marriage to have two Christians that may believe in the good news of the gospel but not have Jesus as the actual mediator, not actually have God as the one who unites them, not actually have the characteristics of how they treat each other as a Christian marriage, but they both individually may feel that way. And often it is because we depend on our skills, our wisdom, our gifts. It is so easy, and this is a constant theme through the Bible, that over and over, the people that are looking for the leader, be it David, another big figure, they're looking, how do do they get to David, if you remember? They get to David, King David, because not because he was the biggest, he was the last one. He was the one, he was literally called the runt. (laughs) No one thought he was the one. Because everybody else looks in a certain way of this is how the true mediator should look. The true mediator, what, what like Moses does, doesn't make it about themselves, like me running out of the tunnel. I'm gonna make it about me and what happens? <laughs> Flat on my face. This article that um, Tim Keller wrote years ago, Tim Keller's a pastor in New York City. He wrote a, a, an article that has really shaped, it's very short and it is one I go back to often. <clears throat> it shapes me and reminds me and convicts me and it should us of this, is called Ministry is Dangerous for Your Spiritual Health. That's what he talks about. 
He says, graces, often called spiritual fruit, are the beauties of character, love, joy, peace, humility, gentleness, self-control. Spiritual gifts are what we do. Spiritual fruit or grace is what we are. Unless you understand the superior importance of grace and the gospel character for ministry effectiveness, the discernment and use of your spiritual gifts may be very dangerous. The terrible danger is that we can look to our ministry activity as evidence that God is with us or as a way to earn God's favor and prove ourselves. When this is the case, there will be a telltale signs of impatience, irritability, pride, hurt feelings, jealousy, boasting. We will identify with our ministry and make it an extension of ourselves. And we will be driven, scared, and either too timid or too brash until we see what we're doing. And perhaps, away from the public glare, there may be secret sins. It all shows that the ministry performance is exhausting and a cover for either of the two forms of pride, which is self-aggrandizement or self-hatred. That is strong. And it is true because we can often, so often depend on our gifts, our skills, our talents, abilities as the measure by which we have relationship both with God and other people and not really any measure within. And this is where Moses, and I would say this is where we all have that first foot forward. Moses looks out from the position of the palace, mind you, and says, I can take care of that. He looks this way and that, it says in here, not because he's looking to see if he's gonna get caught. He's actually looking to see, is anybody else gonna take care of this? And he inserts himself into it so much, we don't know the detail, somehow and and eventually murders this Egyptian, hides him in the sand, and later on is called out for it by his own people. Knowing that who, who would have seen this? Who would have called him out? It's his own people when he goes to them and he puts his hand maybe on one of their shoulders to try and reconcile them. And what do they say to him? They say, who are you to be judge over us? You're gonna kill us like you did the Egyptian? And what are they saying in reality? They're saying, what makes you any different as a leader or mediator than these Egyptians that beat us on the back every day? You're gonna free us with the sword in the same way that they oppress us with the sword? Calls him out, he's scared to death. As the who, the band, the who said in their, in their song, Won't Get Fooled Again, they said that the new boss is same as the old boss. What's the difference? What's the difference between Moses and any others? He thought it was about him. He put himself into that position. He thought he he was the one that was to do it. He thought it was his power. He thought it was his position. He thought it was what he could do. And it wasn't until he was made vulnerable that he could actually care about those who were vulnerable. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast. I was just talking a minute ago to JD about interview with Dax Shepard, who is married to Kristen Bell. Very interesting guy, uh, grown very, uh, I'm kind of uh, um, amazed by him actually. I was listening to a podcast, he was talking about his relationship with Kristen Bell and his marriage. And one of the things that, an event that happened along the way and there was a guy who kind of attacked their car at one point and he jumped out and fought him and 
Dax has a history, he's even honest about it, a history of, of, of fighting, you know, growing up in that kind of culture of fighting. And, and he got in the car and um, Kristen Bell said, why do you do that? Why, why do you do that? He said, well, I wanna protect, I'm here to protect you. She said, no, 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 no. You actually make me more scared when you do that because you're showing me that you're no different from that guy who attacked our car. You're exhibiting the exact same quality and you're sitting right next to me. It's an interesting quote, a very honest tale of, of even their relationship. It's a really honest, honest picture of Moses. What makes him different here? What, what does God need to do to change him, to move into his life, to deliver the vulnerable? He would have to become vulnerable and not depend on his positioning. He would need to be drawn out. And actually that theme drawn out uh, is baked into the book of Exodus. Uh, it's, it's what Moses' name means. It means drawn out of the water. But if you actually begin from the beginning of Exodus to the end, if it's, it's baked into it. You can see it all throughout. It's even in this passage, both of these uh, points that I'm drawing up in verse 19. It says, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us, draw out, the actual language of Hebrew is drawn out against the same word, drawn out. So at the beginning, it talks about that Moses was drawn out of the water. Then it says that he was drawn, right here, we read him drawn out of Egypt. The people of, of Israel would be drawn out of Egypt as well. The water would be drawn, there are other passages where there's water coming out of rocks that are to feed the people, it's drawn out over and over. Why this language? Because this theme is trying to say that there's something that God has to do in him to take him out. And once he puts himself in a position to think he can take care of it as a, a great, you know, 40-year-old who has his, his life together, right, looking out. And then he does this, he's found out, he has to flee to Midian, a place where no one knows him other than that Egyptian, which he's not even really an Egyptian, and he stripped of everything that he had before. God had to not just draw him out of the water, not just draw him out of Midian. He drew him to Midian to draw him out of himself. And that is really what's so unnerving about Christianity. So unnerving about the relationship to God that we're supposed to have. Because I really wanna say that I think most of us think that Christianity can be this thing where we have this relationship with God and we kind of walk side by side and we do our thing. But if we really lean in and know what God is saying to us, he's saying, you cannot stay the same way that you are. Maybe you've heard this term before. I remember hearing it myself and was so encouraged by it, but also incredibly convicted by it. Uh, Christianity is a come as you are party. It really is. And many of us may not even feel that way sometimes. It really is a come as you are party. We are to come as we are, no qualifications. But it is not a stay as you are party. See, Moses is being drawn out of Egypt, out of away from everything that's comfortable, not to build him back up, to make him a better self than he was. Not like an Aquaman of going back in, he finds the right things and tools and gets stronger and goes back in. No, 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 he actually gets weaker. But you know what gets stronger? His relationship to the Lord. 
his relationship to him, he's drawn out in order to make, make more strong to him. This is why the theme of the Bible isn't about Christian strength. It isn't about the people of God's strength. It actually says that God didn't choose the people of Israel to be his people because they were strong or because there were a lot of them or because of any single thing that they would exhibit. Have we ever thought of that? The word church means the called out ones. Think about that, drawn out ones, called out ones. I wanna encourage you that there's no reason that God has brought you to himself other than he wants you to know how absolutely fantastically loved you are. And that's what transforms you. You wanna know what really gets to the core of you that really makes you different? that really sets you apart is that. There's a, we'll get there probably, hopefully, as we look at the book of Exodus. Do you know the whole point, of, I don't know if you remember this in Exodus, they're trying to get out of Egypt to the promised land and there's a moment where God says, I'm not gonna go, I can't go with these people. They are so stiff-necked, they do not listen, I will not go. And Moses, as the mediator, a very changed man, pleads with God and says, God, please let them go. And you know how he pleads? He doesn't say, we earned this. He doesn't say, God, you brought us out. So are you gonna fail now? He says, if you don't go with us, we are nobody. He takes the promised land out of the equation. He says, what makes us us is you, Lord. That's what makes us us. Is the Lord himself. And how incredible what he does here in these couple ways. And I wanna focus in on verse 22, which really zeroes in on, you see the shift of Moses' character and what God does. Verse 22, he says, she gave birth. This is when he's in Midian and, <clears throat> and he's de developed and, and, and created a life in Midian. He says this, she gave birth to a son that is Zipporah and called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner, so, yeah, I can't, I speak for a living, sojourner in a foreign land. What does he teach him? He listen to that phrase, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. For the first time, instead of standing in the palace and looking at his people and saying, I identify with you because I ethnically am just like you. For the first time, he identifies with his people by actually having empathy with them. Because now he's a foreigner away from everything else. And he's actually slid his feet into the shoes of the people that have been impressed. How do we as the church have eyes for those who are vulnerable? As often as the church is accused of not seeing those who are vulnerable. How do we have empathy? Empathy, I think, is often talked about in our circles as whether it's us. Empathy is not feeling like someone feels. That's, that's not what empathy is. Empathy is a skill you learn. Empathy is not a phrase, and we often say this to one another, and I think we believe it's empathy. Empathy is not, I totally get you. We say that a lot to each other. That's not empathy. Empathy is also not when you know, someone tells you a story and then you tell another story from your life that may sound like it connects because you want to connect to their story. That's actually not necessarily empathy either. That's us inserting ourselves back into it. 
You know what empathy really is? Empathy is us learning what is it like to be them, even if you don't actually agree with them. It's learning, and that is what he's having to do for the first time. Here's a good Mother's Day article for us, this article that I read from The Atlantic called, Having Kids Can Make Parents Less Empathetic. Some of us are like, yes. Here's what was fascinating about this article. This person said, first, and this one is easy, I feel empathy for my child on a scale I've never experienced before. But second, I can feel my empathy for others sometimes diminish completely in her presence. In other words, this person is being very honest to say, we, especially I would say in our Western culture, over-empathize, meaning we over-attach to our children. And it can cause us to under-attach or at all be willing to feel with what is, what is really going on around us. I don't have to say we do that with a lot of things, not just kids. But it's saying, how do we understand it? Empathy is not over when, oh gosh, our child doesn't make the soccer team or maybe they get hurt in some way and we feel more than they do for that when we react harsher than they do. Gosh, I know how we do it. Something like that. Or we have no empathy for those around us because we kind of are walled off. In our, our individualistic society, it's easy to do that. But what God has to do to Moses here is to actually remove him, take him out of every single moment of him standing in the palace and actually instead standing in their shoes as a total foreigner, sojourner, alien. And otherwise to know what it's like to live under the oppression in a land that he has not lived in. And the other thing that he has to learn in this, think about this. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. If he is a sojourner, somebody who has to, to go on, like they're moving along in a foreign land means no one knows him. All the pedigree, all the power, all the things that he grew up with, all the wisdom from Egypt that he brought with him, stripped completely. No one knows what he's done. No one cares. He's in a place that no one holds up. He is, take, he is emptied of himself. He has to be. Because what it means to be a mediator not only means you empathize, but to be humble. St. Augustine, uh, one of my favorite theologians, anxious theologian from fourth century, said this, there are three marks of a Christian. The first is humility. The second is humility. The third is humility. Humility is key because it's an emptying of self. It's fascinating. I think one of the most amazing things as we approach this table that I think about is that there's a moment in the Gospels and we looked at this in Mark when we looked, came, before we came to Exodus uh, where there's something called the transfiguration. This is when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountainside and he transforms into this brilliant white before them to kind of, to encourage them who he is. And Peter sees Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. 
And in Luke's account, it says that Jesus is actually explaining to Moses and Elijah what he's about to do, that he's about to go to Jerusalem and he's gonna die on the cross and he's gonna rise again after three days. Can you imagine being Moses and seeing and listening to Jesus roll out his plan for what it means for him to be the mediator? Because if you look at this table, this is not Moses' blood. Moses delivered his people, but he never delivered them. What did he deliver them from? We'll read about it, we'll talk. He delivered them out of Egypt. He delivered them uh, into the promised land, right? He delivered, delivered, delivered. But what did he never, was he never able to deliver from? And what does he long for? Delivery from sin and death itself. Can you imagine being Moses and hearing Jesus tell him, this is my mediator, it's you. The only one who's actually been able to put their hand on both shoulder of us and of God is Jesus, not even Moses. The only one that could do that. Why does God come in flesh? He comes in flesh different than any other religion, any other philosophy, any other idea. He does it in this way because the only way to deliver us, the only one that could empathize with it, what does the Bible say? It says, he sympathized with every one of our weaknesses and yet without sin. And it says that he, in order to be exalted, he emptied himself, became nothing. No one has ever done this like Jesus. That's what it means to come to this table. And when we partake of it, when you come to this table, it's not about you coming. What You come as you are, but you can't go away from this table as you are. You have to feel and know and recognize you're taking, the, you're approaching the table of the mediator who actually bridges your relationship to the Lord God of heaven and earth. This is the body and blood of the mediator. Let's stand together.